Chris. Hey, Kara. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, it's kind of a dreary, rainy day outside. We had that, but now it looks like it's blue. Well, I'm pretty sure it's unrelated, at least my area to your area. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you know, I was trying to relate. <laughs> There's not much that Alabama can relate to New York when it comes to November and beyond for the next I gotta five. say, thank goodness for that. Really? You don't miss snow? I despise snow. The only time I miss snow is when I visit my New York family in December and there's no snow. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm a snow tourist. I want to go sled in it. And then I want to go back to uh, subtropical heat. And yet you have a husky. I know. He, uh, he disagrees with my position. <laughs> It's completely understandable. Completely understandable. He's so uh, damn fuzzy and cute. He is fuzzy and cute. You know, so, we didn't bother bringing him up when Carolyn was on last time. How did we not get that chance? Yeah, talking about my dog humping her leg is probably not the <laughs> coolest intro for a guest I could have thought of. I much preferred talking about her fecal matter. Yeah, I know. It's like, that's not the cool thing, but we talk about her putting fecal matter in a mason jar on a daily basis. Yeah, day. right? So, so, Stephanie, look what you have to look forward to here. <laughs> Our standards are pretty all over the place, I gotta say. <laughs> but since Chris did it, uh, let's do the official welcome uh, to Dr. Stephanie Levy um, to the Sausage of Science today. She is currently a postdoc at Yale, which she'll be finishing up this year, and then she'll be starting as an assistant professor at Hunter College come fall 2019. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm a big fan. Really? Yeah, yeah. I, no, seriously, it's fun to, to hear about other people's work. And then also when my family asks me questions about what the heck do you do? I know you've explained it a million times. I go, you know what? Why don't you just listen to these podcasts and get a taste for what biological anthropology is all about? And it's, that's like, um, it's been really useful. <laughs> that's the best endorsement I think we could get that we are referred to family members. Yeah. That's great. Well, and now you can just send them this podcast about your own work rather than repeating exactly. That's right. Because you're going to have to break it down a little bit for me too. So you and Kara could geek out at a completely different level, but y'all <laughs> will have to treat me like an undergrad. Almost. Maybe. This will be a lesson in science communication. It'll be good. Exactly. <laughs> so Stephanie, let's just get your anthropology origin story, how you got interested in anthropology, what made you decide to pursue it as a career, that kind of fun trajectory. Cool. Yeah. So it was actually, I like to joke that it was actually a Spanish class that got me to become a biological anthropologist. <laughs> anthropologist. So I've had an interest in evolutionary biology for a long time. Back in high school, I had an amazing biology teacher. And my family really encouraged my interest in science. And then my dad encouraged me to look into research opportunities as an undergraduate at University of Michigan for both U of M. And I was really lucky to be a student there because there are a ton of undergraduate research opportunities um, including in evolutionary biology. So for a long time, I was just hopping along to different labs, trying to figure out what I liked. I did work in a youth social paper wasp lab, 
studied uh, invasive cattail species, mouse genome stuff, but nothing really stuck as like, this is what I want to do. This is the question that really motivates me to spend hours and hours reading literature. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had the Spanish class senior year, and I'm starting to freak out because I know I want to do grad school and uh, pursue research, but I didn't know what. And this professor was such a jerk. He was so condescending, super arrogant. I really did not like him. I tried to pick fights with him, which is really outside of my character, but I think that year I was just had a lot of tension and I was like directing it toward him. And one day in class, he said that there was a population called the Yamana that's indigenous that was an indigenous to the southern tip of South America in Tierra del Fuego, where it's cold all the time. And he points out the window and says, look how it's snowing to here. Can you imagine that the Yamana walked around in this kind of weather without any clothes on? And I'm like, that's bullshit. <laughs> so it was my personal quest to prove him wrong. And I came across this book called The Uttermost Part of the Earth that was written by the son of a missionary in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and his experience living with the Yamana. And sure enough, it wasn't that far of an exaggeration by the professor when he said that they didn't wear clothing because they, they wore a, like a fur cape and a little hat, but that was about it in the snow. And I just became obsessed with how this was possible. And then I took a course with Roberto Fusancho and his uh, human variation and adaptation class, and I was hooked after that. I mean, the cold stress stuff really was what brought me to biological anthropology. And I took that same class. Yes! Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, good times. And then Fusancho introduced me to Bill Leonard and his work in on cold adaptation stuff, and that was that. And, that, and then, I, yeah, I pursued a PhD at Northwestern with Bill Leonard. So how disappointed were you that you couldn't prove your Spanish professor wrong? Uh, yeah. <laughs> By then, I had become so fascinated with how the body adapts to cold stress that I just kind of let it slide, and I, like, picked other fights with him. Yeah, and this was around the same time that brown fat was getting more attention because in the mid-2000, like the, around 2005 or to, to 2008, which is when I was at Michigan, uh, more and more studies were coming out showing that adults, uh, some adults retain their brown fats. So like, oh, maybe this is what's going on in the Yamana. And I really wanted to go study the Yamana, but unfortunately, the uh, missionaries forced the Yamana to wear clothes, like wool clothing. And since it, there was a huge degree of precipitation there. People were walking around with wet clothes all the time. And then a scientific expedition supposedly brought respiratory disease that just uh, wiped out the population. Oh, man. Oh, I'm gonna, yeah, it was, it's very sad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So kind of so, nicely into the, uh, the next part. So you have, you and collaborators along with Bill Leonard, have a brand new paper out in the American Journal of Human Biology. So yay, we get to promote our journal as well as our association with this podcast today. But the article is called Brown Adipose Tissue, Energy Expenditure and Biomarkers of Cardiometabolic Health Among the Yakut of Northeastern Siberia. So 
This is gonna be for Chris's benefit. How about you walk us through the super simplistic, what is brown adipose tissue and why should we care? And then we'll start talking about the paper specifically. Yeah, no problem. So brown adipose tissue is similar to white adipose tissue, which is the type of fat that we most often think of. White adipose tissue is designed to store energy, whereas brown adipose tissue actually converts stored fats and sugars into heat in order to warm the body. So human babies have tons of brown fat, and this is the primary way that babies stay warm because they're unable to shiver. And just recently, it's been discovered, well, now it's been about 10 15 years, but it feels That's recent. That's so recent. That is. Yeah. Yeah. That's recent. Yeah. yeah, it's been discovered that some uh, adults retain their brown fat, particularly above the clavicle and the, around other major organs and along the spine. So brown fat has a high density of mitochondria, which give it its brownish color. And it's that mitochondria or a special protein in that mitochondria that's converting the stored energy into heat. So why should we care about brown fat? Well, I think there's lots of reasons, but there's two big ones in particular, at least for human biologists. The first thing is linked to this question that's fascinated me for a a long time, and that's the fact that humans exist in such a wide range of environments and have been successful in such a wide range of environments. And is it possible that brown fat plays a role in our ability to adapt to cold climate? And so I think the paper starts to shed some light on this, but more work is definitely needed. And then the other reason why I think human biologists should care about brown fat is because we know that energy expenditure and energy balance is important for cardiometabolic health, um, but the degree to which different environmental factors may shape variation in energy expenditure is still an unknown. So what we find so far is that people with greater brown fat stores exhibit greater energy expenditure as when they're exposed to cold stress. So what are the environmental factors that lead to greater brown fat? It seems like repeated exposure to cold stress is important. We detect PET scan studies, find higher uh, detection rates of brown fat in the winter as opposed to the summer. Um, My dissertation data is a tentative look at the role of developmental plasticity in brown fat activity. Some other work suggests that diet might be important or even maternal diet playing a role in infant brown fat. So studying brown fat and its relationship to whole body energy expenditure, I think is super important. And I mean, as you mentioned earlier, oh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. No, I was just going to say, before we dive into the, to what you looked at and what we found, that was a great explanation. And I also really got a lot out of your background in your paper. So to problematize what I learned in your paper that I didn't already know, there's also beige fat. Yeah, beige so fat. Can you tell us about beige fat then as well and where that fits in here? Yeah, so beige fat is kind of uh, in its phenotype, a blend between white fat and brown fat in that it has more lipid stores but a lower concentration of mitochondria. And so beige fat seems to be interspersed within white fat deposits, and it 
seems to be recruited when the body's exposed to repeated cold stress, but the degree to which fascia actually contributes to thermogenesis is still an open question because mm. these fish fat cells have much lower mitochondrial density. Mm. And so what I was indirectly measuring in the project in Yakutia was probably most primarily brown fat thermogenesis, um, but we can't say with any sort of certainty that beige fat wasn't also um, playing a role. Thank you. Yeah, beige fat's one of those cool things. And I think going back to, you know, you say 10 to 15 years ago now that brown fat was, you know, quote unquote, rediscovered in adult humans. But the fact of the matter is, is we still know like nothing about <laughs> yeah. it. Like, yeah. We, we, we don't know which of those things are going to be causal relationships between cardiometabolic health and brown fat, which direction does it go. And I've seen some work saying exercise can, can get white fat to beige, but so we don't cool. know what kind of exercise. Is it endurance? Is it, is it resistance exercise? All these fun things. And so it's, a, it's this huge wide open field that I think is super exciting. And I'm so glad you are the pioneer. Like you are the pioneer in anthropology for brown fat. And that's just badass. It totally uh, or naive. <laughs> no, it's not naive. It's completely and utterly badass. And the other part of the badassery is your field site. Tell us about Siberia and tell us about the Akutia. Yeah, so I was incredibly lucky to be a part of the Indigenous Siberian Health and Adaptation Project. We collaborate with researchers at Northeastern Federal University who are phenomenal and have taught me so much, not just about life in Yakutia and what life is like as a Yakut person, but also how to balance uh, research and life and publishing expectations and teaching because they are rock stars. <laughs> and I was able to do data collection in two places, the rural village of Berdigestjak, which is about a six hour drive outside of the capital city, uh, depending on road conditions. And then I spent the second half of my time in Yakutsk, which is the capital, at, and doing data collection from Eastern Federal University in their uh, institute, their medical institute. And it was amazing. <laughs> so what time of year were you there? So I was there in September. So actually, I am convinced that September is the best time to be in Siberia. You don't have swarms of mosquitoes, but you have <laughs> negative mi minus 40 temperatures, uh, and all the trees are orange, and I had unusually good weather, actually, a lot of sunny days, which is not probably typical for September. All the large trees are orange, and... By the time I left, it started to get pretty cold. It was uh, starting to snow, but not too cold for a, a barbecue with colleagues. And um, those kind of experiences really opened my eyes to what lifestyle heterogeneity looks like among mm. the Yakut in action. Uh, and so I got to have some vegetables that were both fresh and pickled that were brought by my colleagues from their family farms. And um, it's common for, depending on the season, during these kind of weekend barbecues to go foraging for berries or mushrooms. I was a little too late in the season for something like that. Meat's super expensive, so like these barbecues are the chance to go hunting and eat <laughs> delicious meat, mm -hmm. but we didn't have a chance to do that either. And it was a really great experience. Yeah, so I'm actually going to be in Finland all of January at the Arctic Circle. Uh, <gasps> so I was hoping to get like 
some tips and hints about what I'm about to experience because I'm told I'm probably going to experience negative 40 degrees. Yeah. I mean, I've seen the place in March and that's where there's like three feet of snow and it just never stops. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have plans to go back during the winter season to compare? Uh, yeah, that's my hope. Probably not until later after I've started my job at Hunter College, but I definitely would like to return and do some comparative work and also start a new project uh, more directly looking at this issue of developmental plasticity in brown fat. How do you plan to tackle that one? That sounds really fascinating. It's still very much up in the air. Um, the project has done some work with school children in Berdikestiak, and so I'm hoping that we can pick that up again and maybe measure changes in brown fat activity in kids over time. Hmm. You have a suit small enough for the kids? Maybe we should yeah. back how about you explain what I just meant by the suit? <laughs> yeah, that was my question. Because I, I, read, I read about this in the article. It sounds like it's got like water tubes and all kinds of fun things going through it. So yes, please explain. <laughs> yes, the bat suit. I love the bat suit. <laughs> Especially on the hot summer day, the bat suit's oh. great. <laughs> Not so great on a cold day. but So brown fat is activated by the sympathetic nervous system when the body feels cold. So in order to quantify brown fat thermogenesis, I use this indirect method where I measure changes in skin temperature of the neck area where brown fat is stored before and after a cold challenge. And this cold challenge involves wearing a bath suit. <laughs> which is a jacket and pants lined with tubing. And we run cold water through the tubing of the suit so that the inside of the suit reaches about 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So for most people, it's feeling cold, but not cold enough to cause most people to shiver. And then after a period of time of cold exposure, we used a thermal imaging camera to track changes in uh, skin temperature in the areas we're interested in. So as far as measuring brown fat in kids, this does raise a new methodological challenge. And I'm trying to brainstorm some ways around this, uh, maybe taking pictures before and after recess when kids are outside. But this gets into issues with physical activity and, yep. and other sorts of And not having a resting metabolic rate. That's going to mm -hmm. be huge. Yeah. So things to talk about with my, col my colleagues <laughs> what's actually feasible in the field very much up in the air. Yeah. So I was talking to my graduate student, Alex, who of course you know, and you're actually the reason Alex is my student because you told her to apply to work with me. So thank you, by the way. No problem. <laughs> I adore her. And She's for great. her project, we're actually looking at working with much larger individuals for which there also isn't a suit that fits. Mm. And we were thinking of turning the suits inside out and using two suits. So they would lay on top of one suit and then a second suit would go over the top of them. And so I'm wondering, like, a, kids might work with that too. Mm. Sandwich them between suits. I'm going to work with these cooling mattresses. And Ooh. I haven't been able to track down who produces them or where you find them, but mm. there's a couple pet scan studies that have used these mattresses. You could always fill an air mattress with ice water. Yeah. <laughs> That's the inexpensive way. <laughs> you get out of control. But yeah, anyway, so yeah, sorry, Chris, as we've gotten onto our fun details, but I've always called it a bomb suit instead of the bath suit because it's the kind of suit that military personnel wear 
to cool down in like the really large bomb suits they use to defuse bombs, which get super hot in hot climates. So sorry, crazy technical details. No, no, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard you talk about that, but you know, your, your paper helps me understand the research question. Correct me if I'm wrong here, and then I'd, I'd like you to fill in the gaps. The prediction is that brown tissue is providing thermogenetic adaptation so other body fat or other means aren't necessary. So the prediction would be the leaner they were, the more thermogenetic brown fat they would have. Is that right? Hmm, yeah. Um, the relationship between white fat and brown fat, I think, is complicated and still being pieced apart. In my literature search, I've, I found that the relationship between brown fat and white fat is that there isn't much of a, a relationship. The, the hypothesis that's coming from the biomedical field is that people with greater brown fat will burn more white fat and thus be leaner. Okay. We know now that white fat is an endocrine tissue, and the degree to which white fat may downregulate brown fat, I think, is still an open question. And so do you have brown fat using up the white fat, or do you have white fat downregulating the brown fat? But in older adults, it does seem like people with greater brown fat are leaner. So the health implications of this tissue, I think, require more research. What other research has found, though, is that people with greater brown fat do tend to have healthier glu blood glucose and cholesterol levels. Mm. And so as, as far as overall body composition goes, I think it's still an open question, but there is some research to suggest that these blood biomarkers of cardiometabolic disease risk may be related to brown fat. So your prediction, and the reason you would have studied with the Yakut was because since they are a cold region people, that they would have a higher rate of brown fat than in other populations. Exactly. And so you put them in these suits, you get them cold, you look at the thermal imaging, and you found what? Well, I found that adults with more brown fat expend more energy during cold stress, or people with indirect evidence of brown fat thermogenesis as measured by change in skin temperature during a cold challenge, burn more energy during cold stress, thus suggesting that brown fat may be linked to non-shivering thermogenesis. So there's shivering thermogenesis and then there's also non-shivering thermogenesis. And brown fat may uh, play a role in non-shivering. Are the Yakut then unique in any way? As, in, as far as brown fat is concerned? Yes. As far as population comparisons go, I have used this method for measuring brown fat activity in adults in Chicago as well. Uh -huh. And it does seem like the change in skin temperature during this cold challenge is much greater among the Yakut than people in Chicago, uh -huh. suggesting that Yakut adults may have more brown fat. Cool. We're going to have so much fun comparing our data. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have like little excited chances going on that no one can see except us. So yes. one, one more follow-up, if you don't mind. And I, I, I know this, like, it sounds, one, amazing, two, very new. And it sounds like there are lots and lots of potential controls that you, you don't know which direction. So just the mm -hmm. one that I heard that I can latch on to that's standard diet. Did you see any relationship with diet? Did you 
control for that in any way, or is that still an unexplored area? We have some dietary data, but I have not looked at it yet. I worked with an undergraduate in Chicago who was interested in this topic, particularly the relationship between polyunsaturated fatty acids, or PUFA, and brown fat activity, and that data is just sitting on my computer. Hopefully that will one day become something. It's an open question that's worth investigating. Yeah, yeah, no, you have a career ahead of you. Yeah. That's the beautiful part about this is, like, like I said, you're a pioneer, and so it's just wide open with so many more questions than answers right now. It's really awesome. And congrats, uh, by the way, on the 100 gig. I spent, I think, a semester and a half there as a, as a master's student. Cool. I didn't know yeah. that, Chris. Huh. I did. I was in their <laughs> program between dropping out of one program and dropping out of another program. <laughs> so the next question I have is... <laughs> this comes out of my own experience with like ridiculous media requests on this new craze going on, particularly in New York City. The cold gym craze. These gyms, one in particular is called Burn with like seven R's, which is just horrible and they should be closed down because of that. Uh, anyway, so these gyms are of course purporting that come and work out in the cold, you'll burn so many more calories. And I... I clearly know my opinion on this, but I was curious what you were thinking about these things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I would love to hear your take on this because this is so directly related to the National Outdoor Leadership School study, and which really, I think, could fuel some of the science behind their thinking. And I think that it, yeah. So <laughs> I have two mindsets on it. One, I'm concerned about people's safety exercising than cold because if you happen to already be at a higher risk for heart attacks due to high blood pressure, exercising in the cold may not be the right choice for you because you could have even higher blood pressure and put you at risk of a heart attack. Second, and now this is coming from research on resting metabolic rate, so the picture could be very different during cold exposure while active, but uh, my data from resting metabolic rate suggests that for people who are exposed to mild, short-term colds, they may actually experience a decrease in metabolism. And that's not what these people are looking for. So the science behind it still needs more work, I think. Is, is I don't know. This, what, what's your take on this? Well, just to interject, so I know if I'm on the same page, is this craze in any way associated with Wim Hof, the ice, the Swedish Iceman? Yes, I have that guy's book. <laughs> yeah, so they like pointing to that kind of thing as their, you know, justification. So one thing I want to address is, yeah, that resting metabolic rate, like, the crazy variability that you see with people exposed to cold, you'll see resting metabolic rate shoot up, but there are people that you see it depressed. And so there isn't like this paradigm of cold meaning high energy expenditure. So yeah, what, what, you, what you said, and going back to the Knowles work, that's the reason why I've gotten a lot of media attention because of this gym craze. Mm -hmm. And everyone likes to just get a snippet of those articles and to use as justification for these cold gyms. Mm -hmm. But what they don't realize is that the moment you start exercising in cold, you don't have increased metabolic rate to deal with the cold because exercising is going to warm you up. Mm -hmm. And so like you don't get this extra burn. But yeah, the concern, especially one, if you train in a cold gym for like a marathon in summer is incredibly dangerous. But two, there is some evidence showing that you can push yourself harder in cold conditions, which 
is right along what you said that you're going to have increased heart rate and higher risk of cardiovascular issues. But yeah, so I think it's complete BS. <laughs> complete BS. Don't spend crazy amounts of money on those memberships, people, if you are thinking about it. Don't. Just don't do it. Uh, and by the way, we're not paid advertisers for the cold gym craze. As you Please don't sue me for libel. <laughs> or slander. I think it's slander in this case. Well, it's, it's recorded, so it's recorded, so it's libel. So I guess we're pretty close to wrapping up. And you've already kind of talked about the future directions, one, doing comparative across seasons, and then two, looking at the developmental aspects of brown adipose tissue. But we like to end on a fun question, which I totally didn't include. But what fun things are you reading right now that are not necessarily academic? or listening to or watching that are also not necessarily academic. What are you binge watching <laughs> or one, any of those things that we can uh, flesh out our own recreational libraries? As far as reading, I had never read 1984, so I figured now is a good time to start that. <laughs> is that really hard to get through right now? Like given political climate, like does it feel close to home? Yeah, I think that's why I, I put it down and then had to pick it up again multiple times. <laughs> I am a huge podcast addict, especially fictionalized po podcasts. I've recently got into Welcome to Night Vale, which is so bizarre yes. and fun. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so good. There's a new podcast. All the Gimlet Media podcasts are great. <laughs> big fan, big fan. Yeah. Now that I don't have a commute, I, it's harder to fit that time in. But once you move to New York, you'll have plenty of time. Oh, yeah. Plenty of commuting. <laughs> have you gotten to the glow cloud yet in Night Vale? Yes. I love the glow cloud. I'll <laughs> the glow cloud. <laughs> My husband and I went to a live taping of Welcome to Night Vale, and there were people dressed as glow clouds, and it was the most amazing experience. That's amazing. <laughs> That's a goal for once I move to New York. I'm hoping like that I'll be able to catch them in York City. Even if you don't have a commute, just wandering the streets of New York, listening to podcasts is one of my favorite pastimes. This is a pre-podcast, but just wandering the streets, period. <laughs> I miss that so much. So. My goodness. Yeah. And are you watching anything fun and exciting these days in what I'm sure is abundant free time? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is embarrassing to admit, but my nephew, I'm trying to win his love by watching Steven Universe. <laughs> And now I'm, actually, yeah, I'm totally hooked. Like it became, it started off as like, I'm going to check this out. Do it. No, I'm now hooked. The lore is fantastic. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. I don't know this one. Chris, you would love it. And I even think your kids would love it. All so right. Good. What's it on? <laughs> you can watch it on Hulu. That's how I watch it. Cool. So how can folks get a hold of you to, to learn more about what you're up to? They can contact me via email at Stephanie Levy, so S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E dot L-E-V-Y at Yale.edu. I don't have a Hunter email address yet, but hopefully that'll be coming soon. Are you a Twitterfier or anything? I'm not. I'm sorry. Right one day soon. No, it's okay. It's fine. There's, there's, there's no reason for everyone to be on there. It can be, it can be a little much. However, um, I am on there. Oh, yes, you are on there. Underscore L-Y. And I'm at Kara Akabak. I'm on there, kind of. <laughs> You're on there. I'm on there, but I'm not super active on there. We've been the Sausage of Science for the Human Biology Association. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. It was great chatting with you. Great to chat with you, too. Thank you so much for having me.